0: Well, good morning. Welcome to the Leeward campus on this Sunday that's an island of refuge in the raging sea of winter. Is that what it is? Well, most of us don't think much about our hearts. Uh, That is until we have trouble with them. I was reminded of this a couple years ago when, as a part of our Christ Community Wellness Program... Uh, we are asked to uh, stop by a local pharmacy for a, just a quick check. It's called a vitality check. And uh, when you do that, again, it's not your annual physical, but it's a quick check of your vitals. So I walk in there, and the healthcare professional, the nurse, weighs me, which is interesting, and then checks my pulse and my blood pressure, and then she puts her stethoscope on my heart. She starts listening to my heart. I mean, I've had a doctor listen to my heart forever. I mean, my heart just keeps going. And so she's listening, and then she's listening a little longer. And then she asks, she says, Mr. Nelson? She said, uh, has your doctor said anything about an irregularity with your heart? I'm hearing a little irregularity. I said, I don't know. I've never heard of that. I said, no. I mean, guys don't want to admit that. So I said, no. So she listened a little bit more. And she said to me, she said, well, she said, I don't know what your doctor said, but I'm hearing some irregularity in your heart. I think you should see your doctor. Well, of course, I had to confess that to my wife when I went home. And uh, she says, get your skedaddles in to see the doctor. That's what wives do. And so I went into my doctor, uh, and uh, he looked me over very carefully to test. And the good news, at least from my perspective, uh, is he said, Tom, your heart's just fine. And then he said, as I was leaving, he said, and I really like my doc. I don't like doctors, you know, I go to doctors, but I really like my doc. And he said to me, he said, Tom, I'll keep my eye on it. Hearts are strange things. Healthy hearts really matter, of course. They matter for our physical wellness, don't they? Uh, But we use the word heart not just to describe this thing that pumps in our chest that keeps us alive. But we also use this idea of heart to describe our inner world, who we are as people of will and emotion and feeling. And all of us here intuitively know, across the spectrum of our humanity, is that when our heart goes, other things go too. When our heart stops, life stops. Why is that? Because we live by our heart and from our heart. Problems of the heart surface in our relationships, don't they? Maybe a relationship in a marriage if you're married. And after a short while, when husband and wife begin to see the depths of the hearts of each other, there's a bit of shock. Call it heart shock. And under the surface, often a marital difficulties are hearts that have irregular beats, mistrust, an unforgiving spirit, insensitivity, painful words, haunting silence. Problems also, heart problems, occur in other relationships, don't they? Maybe a friendship, but School with one of your classmates, a colleague in your office, or another congregant at Christ' community. If you look below the surface of this irregular heartbeat, you hear and see a stubborn pride, unmet expectations that fester, critical spirits and bitterness. It just is a part of this whole deal. Problems of the heart also surface in teams whether it's on the football field or a basketball arena or in a corporate office. We often describe this as a lack of team chemistry. It really is a problem of the heart. Team chemistry is sabotaged with selfish ambition and pride. But problems of the heart perhaps are most perilous when they surface in your spiritual life and mine. Hearts that once were in tune with God, whose heartbeat was in sync with him, become irregular. Hearts that were in tune with God, slide out of tune. With disappointment in your life and mind, doubt, disillusionment, cynicism. Problems of the heart are big problems. Problems. And beneath our Sunday church smiles, I think you're quite smiley today. Every one of us here, young and old, newer to our Christian faith, checking out our Christian faith, been in church all our life. Everyone here, everyone wrestles with the matter of the heart. And everyone needs to keep a very close eye on their heart. This is what the brilliant writer of Hebrews in the first century tells us in Hebrews chapter 3. So if you have your Bible with you this morning, electronic paper, turn with me as we explore this text together. If you're visiting today, we've been entering into this text of Hebrews in the New Testament. And this is a sermon Uh, Quite a long sermon, which gives some of us cover who are long-winded. But peppered throughout this sermon are warnings, several warnings, for followers of Jesus, Jewish followers in the first century, who are, are facing problems of the heart. And I'd like us, as we make our way through this marvelous book with all its literary artistry and its deep profundity is to see these warning signs that will appear through the book as, think of them as literary speed bumps, okay? When you drove into the Leawood campus, you slowed down. Why? There was a speed bump because often there are children playing. And when you come to an intersection, you hit a speed bump because speed bumps do two things. They tell you to slow down and they tell you there's a possible peril ahead. So the writer of Hebrews gives us literary speed bumps to slow down and to beware of perils ahead. Now, we have already encountered the first speed bump. It's in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. It's one of the primary metaphors of the book. It's a nautical metaphor called drifting. And we unpacked this and said that this nautical metaphor of drifting compares boats with humans, with lives. So just like boats can drift to, to their own peril, humans can drift and that's perilous too. But now, in chapter 3, we're introduced to the next metaphor. It's not a nautical metaphor. It is an agrarian one or a biological one, and it's called hardening. And again, if you are a gardener or a farmer or you grew up on a farm, you, I mean, you don't even have to be that, right? I like to garden. I have roses. They look very frozen, like they'll never come back. I'm hopeful for spring. But I'm not a green thumb gardener, but I know one thing, and you know it too. And the Hebrew readers knew it too. And that is, if you're going to have a fruitful, vibrant, healthy plant that's flourishing, soil matters. And hard soil makes it virtually impossible for a plant to flourish. This image, this metaphor, the writer of Hebrews designs to place early in the sermon for it to ride on the back of your shoulders throughout the whole book. And it reminds us that just like soil can be hard, human souls can be hard too. Both are perilous to human flourishing. And like drifting, hardening is often subtle. It's incremental. It's erosive and corrosive. And hardening of the heart, your heart, my heart, is one of the greatest threats to your life and to human flourishing. We have seen this in a remarkable television series. Some of you I know are Breaking Bad fans. You're sad it's over. But Walter White's hardened heart. Once a teacher, right, right? then comes meth, is on display for the whole world to see the catastrophic peril of an increasing hardened heart to himself, to his family, and to society. So the Hebrew writer welcomes us to the most murky and mysterious place in the universe, and that is your heart and mine. And he wants to warn us of the dangers that lurk there. He wants us to understand in a deeper way what hardening of the heart is. And he wants us to have the wisdom and passion to avoid it. So again, open your Bible to Hebrews 3, and as we enter there, the writer addresses the peril of a hardened heart. Now, how does he do this? Don't miss this. The structure of chapter 3 flows around this, the whole chapter. First, the writer looks to the past, and he tells a sobering story. Then, he looks to the present and offers a serious warning. And then, in this crescendo of hope, he builds to a hopeful reminder of the future. So the flow of his artistry is a sobering story, a serious warning, and a hopeful reminder. A sobering story. It begins in verse 7, actually, if you have your Bible open. It goes through verse 11. You'll notice there are quotations in your Bible. The Hebrew writer quotes the Old Testament text of Psalm 95. And he begins with verse 7, and notice he says, and the Holy Spirit says, and I don't want us to miss this because the New Testament writer looks back to the Old Testament and said, the Old Testament is inspired by God. The Holy Spirit wrote it through human agency. Don't miss that. Also, if you're following on this series, and I hope you'll join us in this series because Hebrews is a remarkable text, you will notice repeatedly in the text, the Trinitarian imprints, the Trinitarian fingerprints, and the footprints are all over this masterpiece, now, what he is doing is he is helping the first century generation in the Roman Empire, a group of church, a church, Jewish believers who are, are facing heart problems, who are, who are almost ready to let go of their faith rather than holding on. That's where he is. So he says, look back at the Exodus generation. The Exodus generation is not the greatest generation. And when we look back in the Old Testament, in Torah, in Exodus, and Uh, numbers and Deuteronomy, particularly Exodus 17, we see what a mess this Exodus generation is. They were amazing. I mean, they were given the most amazing provision and power of God. They saw the plagues enter Egypt, right? It's pretty impressive. They saw the Red Sea part, for goodness sakes, with Charlton Heston, I'm sure. They saw food come from heaven and manna. They saw water provide. Their clothes never wore out. Good grief, this generation saw the power of God. And yet, dripping with irony in Psalm 95, which actually was a worship psalm where God's covenant people came to worship. It was like a hymn today. And it centered dripping in irony in chapter 17 of Exodus. In other words, when you read this text, that this... Hebrew writer is referring to, when they came to a place with no water, the parchedness of their tongues revealed the hardness of their heart. They simply refused to hear and obey God's voice if you've read the story. And they demanded they Talk about losing it. Talk about not having a grip on reality. They demand, let's go back to Egypt. Oh, wasn't slavery great? Right. Doesn't it surprise you that the writer of Hebrews, the way he arranges this text and the progression of it and its logical cohesion, wants us to understand that history matters. In our time, we're so obsessed with the present. And yet how you and I live in the present is deeply connected to how we understand the past. And this is what this brilliant writer is doing. Sam Cooke's song. Some of you are a little older. I mean, I'm not that old yet. Someone said in the first service I had gray hair, Jeanette. (laughs) Remember Sam Cooke's Wonderful World? This song, you've heard it. It's been in movies. I won't sing it to you. I just, I cannot, I want to, but I won't. Yeah, yeah, oh gosh. (laughs) But here's the lyrics. Don't know much about history. You with me? Don't know much about biology. Don't know much about a science book. Don't know much about the French I took, right? But I do know that I love you. Isn't that sweet? And I know that if you love me too, what a wonderful world this would be. Now, again, I'm not bagging on a wonderful world of love. I'm all for that. But the Hebrew writer accents his logic with a bit of a different sense. History does matter. Hebrews chapter 3 is cementing in his sermon that history does matter. And he says, look back, quoting Psalm 95. You'll notice it in chapter 3. We'll see it again in chapter 4 next week. And he jogs the collective memory of people who have forgotten the perilous consequences of an entire generation that's gone before them. Here's what he says, if I may just, can I just paraphrase it a little bit? The text is intense. Its literary intensity is right in your face. He says, hey, look, learn from the Exodus generation. Don't harden your hearts. These characters wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, dying like flies, digging graves. Is that what you want? Why? Not because they lacked water because they had a hard heart. So he brings in this context, in the center of the text, this serious warning in verses 12 to 13. Let me read that again. Take care, brothers, or you could say sisters, humans, lest there be any of you with an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort or encourage one another every day As long it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Notice verse 12. In this warning, the English translation says, take care. And again, with all due respect to the translators, I think this is too light in our English idea today. Because often when I say goodbye to my daughter Sarah and her husband, and they go back to Cleveland or whatever, I go, hey, take care. I'm about to love you, but take care. It's just a sort of filler word of kindness. That's not at all what this Greek text is. Uh Uh-uh. It's more like this. Watch out. Eugene Peterson paraphrases it. Watch every step you take from here on. Beware. And what he is saying is keep an eye on your hearts, folks. Why is there such a sense of urgency? Now, notice verses 12 and 13 and 14 and how they are developed. The urgency is centered around two things. First, because belief is dangerous, or disbelief is dangerous, and sin is very deceitful. Disbelief is dangerous, and sin is deceitful. Notice the language of falling away in verse 12. This suggests people who had followed Jesus, but who are beginning to lose their grip on Him in disbelief. And I want you to notice, if you have your Bibles open, and I hope you do, you will notice an unusual phrase. He says, an evil, unbelieving heart. Now, in my study, I can't find this exact phraseology in all of the New Testament. And the Hebrew writer often does this, whether it's classical Greek or koine, common Greek. He pulls a phrase, and he sets it right there and plops it in front of your eyes. Like a neon light shining. An evil, unbelieving heart. Hmm. So, what comes into your mind when you think about an evil heart? What comes into my mind as a terrorist... Suicide bomber? Some psychopath? A rapist? A murderer? And clearly, this is unmasked evil. But the Hebrew writer has another kind of egregious evil in mind. And that mm-hmm. is massed evil. Do you see what the text says? The Hebrew writer says that an evil heart is an unbelieving heart. He equates evil with disbelief. See, most of us, when we think of disbelief, is, oh, it's no big deal. But to the Hebrew writer, disbelief is a big deal. It's a grave deal. In fact, another writer of Scripture, Paul, says, whatever is not a faith of sin. Disbelief is very dangerous. But also notice how it's wrapped around the second truth, is that sin is deceptive. Notice verse 15. Notice the causal connection with hardening a heart and sin's deceitful. Did you see that tight connection? Mark Twain, the great Mark Twain, said it this, way. well, he said, and there are lies, damnable lies, and statistics. Now, he's not talking here about statistics, but the Hebrew writer is talking about damnable lies. One of the most incredible ironies of your life and mine, and the human experience across cultures is this. None of us like to be lied to, right? Anybody here like to be lied to? <laughs> I mean, whether it's a friend, a politician, a mechanic, about what's your car, we hate being lied to. But one of the ironies of your heart and mine is the damnable lies we tell ourselves. We hate others lying to us, but we lie to ourselves all the time. And this is where the Hebrew writer has it. We tell ourselves damnable lies in our heart of hearts. Lies like, oh, just a little bit won't hurt. Just a little bit more. It's not really a big of a deal. It's not so bad. You've already done it once. <laughs> there's, there's no point in resisting anymore. You really deserve to be happy. See, sin is many things. It's the ultimate black hole of the universe. Perhaps the most murky place is your heart and mind. Sin is so enticingly deceptive. And if it weren't so deceptive in our hearts, (laughs) if it wasn't so attractive to us, it wouldn't be so appealing. Sin not only pulls the wool over our eyes, it closes our ears. And it numbs our hearts and hardens them. German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who I think has written the best work ever written apart from the Bible on temptation, describes the temptation, the enticement for all of our hearts. And he says, when we are enticed, when temptation greets us, God becomes unreal to us. <sighs> Jeremiah 17:9 the prophet of the Old Testament says it well he says the human heart is deceitful beyond all else who can grasp it. Listen carefully. If there's one thing you and I must never blindly trust it is our own hearts. We need to need other eyes on it. Now notice, sandwiched in between an evil, unbelieving heart, notice in verse 12, and the deceitfulness of sin in verse 14, there is this meaty phrase in verse 13. Do you see it? And that is, he says, now exhort, every, or exhort one another or encourage one another every day is as long as it's still called today. In other words, disbelief is dangerous. Sin is deceitful. That's why we need spiritual community and why it's so essential. You and I can't be just trusted to ourselves for our hearts. The Lone Ranger, Christian, can have serious heart disease and never know it. This is why we're not only tethered to the gospel, we're tethered to each other in spiritual community. Now notice also the repetitive emphasis, like an antiphonal refrain of the word Today. Today, if you hear God's voice, today, if you hear God's voice, it is in chapter three and chapter four. Hear God's voice. And one of the ways in the context where we hear God's voice, one of the ways is through a brother or sister's gentle correction. One of the things I'm most grateful for on my team as a staff team is that people love me enough when my heart is out of beat, they will say in a gentle way, Tom, I think your heart's off here. Perhaps that's one of the greatest gifts of love a devoted friend or fellow congregant that knows you well can breathe into your life. So how does hardening of the heart take place? Let me suggest from the biblical text of Scripture four stages, and I'd like you to write these down if you're taking notes. They're evident in the Exodus generation, and they're evident in the garden. First is this, we buy into a lie. Hardening of our heart begins with the deception of our heart. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, the Exodus generation buys into the lie, and this is the lie, that God does not have their best interest at heart, that God's holding back, that God is not good, and He's not trustworthy. And that's the entry point for your hard heart and mine. But it moves on. Once we buy into the lie about God, we begin to blame God and others. This is what happened in the garden again, Adam and Eve. And it's almost humorous, right? They blame each other. Like Adam says, She did, she made me do it. And Eve says, the serpent made me do it. The Exodus generation does the same thing. They blame God. They actually stick their finger through a question. You know, you can blame it through a question. They stick their fingers at God and Moses, like sure fault. You've taken us out of this wonderful place called Egypt into this God-forsaken wilderness to let us die. So they buy into a lie. They start blaming God and others. And third, the third thing, an increasing hardening of a heart, is we take things into our own hands. Deception and blame always lead to disobedience. It's just a matter of time. This happened to the garden. This happens to the Exodus generation. They rebel against Moses. They basically say, we're going back to Egypt, hanging on your beak. Come hell or high water, we're going back. They recraft the story, the narrative. They become God. And they take things in their own hands. And the fourth stage is... makes our hearts shudder. And that is, we stop hearing God's voice. Hardened hearts become tone deaf to the still, small voice of God. You will notice again in this text, chapter, verse 7, chapter 4, verse 7, chapter, verse 15. He says, today, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. The perilous path to a hardened heart is no different in your life, in my life, in your generation, in my generation, as the Exodus generation. It flows downhill like this in the tributary of deception. We blame God and others. We, by a lie, we blame God. We take things in our own hands. We stop hearing God's voice anymore. This is always how it goes downhill. The perilous path to a hardened heart, your hardened heart, or my hardened heart is often triggered by the idol factory of our heart. The idols of sex, power, money, acceptance, approval, or a myriad of other idolatrous things. They're simply mirages of the soul we cling to for love and significance and meaning. So maybe this morning you find yourself in a very difficult and unfulfilling marriage. Maybe you find yourself in a prolonged singleness that you never wanted. Maybe you are agonizing as you came to church, feeling the pressure of making those numbers at work, getting a good review and keeping your job. Or maybe you're feeling the pressure in school of getting those high grades so you can get in that college and get that scholarship. You're beginning to believe a lie and cutting corners. That God wants you to be happy, successful, smart, hip, financially secure, rather than obeying God. All I can say is when we start moving to the hardness of a heart, we enter into the danger zone of a Breaking Bad, Walter White world. And none of us are impervious to that whether you're new to the Christian faith, you're checking it out, you've been in church all your life, whether you're young or old, friends, the greatest peril to you is a hardened heart and to me. Rather than loving your spouse, maybe you are pursuing, maybe you are putting your toe in the water. Maybe you've plunged into an emotional affair or a sexual affair. Perhaps you're facing the brutal facts at school or in your job. And you are fudging things to look good, to make your numbers look good. It's amazing and tragic, isn't it? How once we begin to disobey God's word, once we begin to rationalize and compromise its truth, it's so much easier to keep disobeying. And it's so much harder to hear God's voice speak the author of Hebrews, early on in his sermon, says, watch your heart. Because a heart problem is a big problem, but notice it's not the end problem. There is a hopefulness that emerges. Not only does he tell us this sobering story, this serious warning, but now he builds in a crescendo of hope around a reminder as he looks forward Verse 14, he says, for we share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. It is as if the Hebrew writer is saying to his own heart as he pens these words, guard my heart, Lord, guard my heart. And he looks us back at the earlier opening verses of the chapter to the key against a garden heart, a hardened heart. I hope for a reminder here is in verse one. "Therefore, holy brothers, you share in a heavenly calling. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, as this Hebrew writer has done in both chapter one and chapter two, the author keeps pointing us back to the true and better Jesus, the Creator, the Redeemer, the greatest lover of your soul, that no counterfeit could ever, ever satisfy. And he says, Jesus is better even than Moses. He's not bagging on Moses. He is the faithful high priest, the one who shed his atoning blood for your sin and mine, for your hard heart and mine. And the glory of his cross and the gospel allows us to enter God's holy place of his presence by grace through faith. And the deepest longings of your heart and mind can find deep intimacy with the greatest lover of your soul, the one you were created to ultimately love. With all heart. And one day you will fully love if you embrace the gospel in the new heavens and new earth. Your heart longs for that day. Mine does too. Now, notice as we walk through Hebrews, the emphasis of past, present, and future. And he says, Consider Jesus. And as we get to chapter 13, verse 8, as he builds to the end, this is what the Hebrew writer says. He connects all the dots. Jesus Christ is the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. And so the Hebrew writer says to us, tether your life, young person, old person. Tether your life now. Tether your heart to Jesus, to the good news of the gospel. Because as he will tell us in chapter 6, Jesus is the one strong anchor of your life that is sure and steadfast when everything else betrays you. Amen? And with the love of a shepherd's heart, remember he's he's a pastor with a caring heart. He asked the question to his readers, to his listeners, and to us. What is the condition of your heart? Today. What is the condition of my heart today? And maybe you're here this morning and, and you didn't really want to come to church. But perhaps a loving God, a sovereign God, has moved heaven and earth to get you in that seat. The great physician simply wants you to slow down long enough to take a vitality check and to ponder this question. Where's your heart? Is your heart hardening? I want to give you three questions, diagnostic questions for your heart check this morning and for mine. And you can be thinking about them this morning or this week. First, are you rationalizing sin or repenting from it? Maybe you're here this morning and you have an unforgiving heart, a bitterness towards someone. Maybe they've treated you badly, wounded you with words or silence. Maybe your spouse. Maybe a sibling, coworker, student, fellow congregant. And rather than forgiving them from your heart, you've been rationalizing your anger and bitterness toward them. And your heart has been hardening. God's voice has diminished. Perhaps you're rationalizing not giving generously. Of your financial resources, your ties and offerings to the local church, which the Bible teaches, as an act of love and obedience. Maybe you're rationalizing your disobedience by convincing yourself there's just too much a month at the end of my paycheck. Or college looms, or retirement looms. Perhaps you're rationalizing some kind of sexual impurity adultery, fornication, pornography. You've been convincing yourself, you know who you are, that your spouse is not meeting your needs or prolonged singleness is not your fault or your same-sex attraction is something that needs to be pursued in an active gay lifestyle. Whatever sin we rationalize, friends, it's just a cover for our disobedience and it increasingly hardens our heart. The most perilous thing for you and me is a hardened heart. So will you come clean this morning with the lover of your heart? Will you embrace the gospel? Will you repent of your sin and embrace his grace, breathe his grace, experience his grace? Will you proclaim the gospel to your own heart this morning? Secondly, are you working for God's grace or receiving it? Let me just say simply here, you and I cannot make our hearts soft You and I cannot be the great physician. We can't heal our hearts on our own. Only our Lord Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross and his glorious resurrection. The power of the Holy Spirit can change a hard heart. Grace, it's all grace. We live by and from our hearts and our hearts are transformed. They are sustained. They are empowered by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thirdly, are you running from God's will or rejoicing in it? This may be meddling, I don't know, instead of just preaching right now. If the Holy Spirit's meddling with you, listen carefully to what he's saying. This morning you may be facing big challenges in your life, I don't know. Maybe it's a health issue, you've gone to several physicians, you prayed and asked God to heal you, you find yourself in a crucible of suffering you never wanted. The days are long. The road ahead is uncertain. But will you trust God with this today? Will you hear his voice to you today? Will your heart rejoice not in the suffering, but that God has allowed you to be right there today for his ultimate good purposes? Will you run from God? Or will you run to him? Maybe God has you in a place in your life, and if you're honest, you never thought you'd be there. You don't want to be there. You never imagined your life like this. Maybe a difficult job you don't want to go to tomorrow. Maybe a boring class you don't want to go to tomorrow. Maybe a painful marriage that every day is brutal. It may be a hauntingly empty nest or a fearful and boring retirement or living alone after the loss of a loved one. Now, as hard as those circumstances are, and I'm not minimizing those in your life, a hardened heart is the greatest peril facing you, not your circumstance. So will you trust God right where you are today? Will you hear his voice today? Will you hear the tender love of Jesus who died for you, that you are his beloved? That he will take care of you and He will guide you, that you can trust Him with everything. In her extraordinary memoir, Surprised by Oxford, Carolyn Weber, Weber describes her spiritual journey to faith in Jesus Christ at Oxford University. In her search, Carolyn describes a poignant moment of a conversation that led her to Christ with a follower of Jesus. And Carolyn writes these words, tell me, I finally got out grappling for a light switch in the dark. Is there a word for wanting to forget this God and Jesus and this whole mess? Is there a word for wanting to forget it all? I pinned him with my eyes, she writes. He looked at me, draining his glass, and said, despair, despair. all of us intuitively know that if our heart is not right, our life is not right. And if our heart is not right, what greets us every day in the ultimate day of our death is despair. Why? Because you and me, we live by our heart and we live from it. God's word echoes across the canyons of time and says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Let's pray. Father, speak. Lord Jesus, speak. Holy Spirit, speak into our hearts, those murky places where we need to experience your grace your transformation, your forgiveness. In Jesus' name.